our background in the scriptures and our background in um, doctrine. I know it wasn't kind of the fun, feel good, but I wanted us to lay a foundation that we as Christians believe that God made it. Um, we can have varying streams of how we think that worked out, but as long as you say God made it, then we're on the same team. Then we have the idea of the Trinity, this perfect relationship, this perfect relationship of pure love and honesty and truth and how it's supposed to be between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that they are independent, separate individuals in perfect community, in perfect harmony. And then every piece that we read through the scriptures that talks about relationship and how we live with each other and our marriages, that we're, we're trying to attain that, to emulate that, a perfect relationship. So that when Jesus speaks of coming to claim his bride and when Jesus speaks of the Father's love for the Son, that it's, it's, a, it's a relationship that is perfection. And we're all longing for that to be true in our lives. So as we walk through the Advent season, we're trying to build off of that, that we want you to spend time studying God's Word, reading God's Word, and so we thought one of the best ways would be to get a storybook Bible. We've talked about them for a long time. Um, this one's got a little water damage to it because I think it got rained on once or something, um, and Savannah made me promise that I wouldn't lose our place. We're getting ready to read about the Ten Commandments, so even today she walked up because her bookmark wasn't in it and she noticed it. Where's my bookmark? So it's okay, Dad. I remember that we're about to read the Ten Ways to be Perfect. So she, she remembers the title of where we're at, and the, she, it's pretty funny. What we want you to do is we want you to take this book. Um, if you have kids, we're setting you up for awesomeness, I promise. If you don't have kids or grandkids at home, then we're giving you an overview. This is required reading for anybody going on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. You have to read this book. It's written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and she is a member of Tim Keller's church in New York City, um, Redeemer Presbyterian, and they reach out to... Um, people on Broadway and in business and finance and um, professors, people of great intelligence and great means and great um, influence. And so they wrote this book, and it's the Storybook Bible, which the subtitle is Every Story Whispers His Name. So what we want you to do is if you start reading this tonight with your kids in chapter 1, or you read it yourself, and I want to make this just a kid thing, um, you adults will be terrifically blessed by this. If you start reading one chapter a night, Tonight, then on Christmas Eve, you will land, read, having read a survey of the entire Old Testament, and on Christmas Eve, you'll land with the coming of Christ in the Bible. Now, yes, it's not all, you know, thousand pages in the ESV that I typically read from, but you'll get an overview that every story in the Old Testament is speaking the name of Jesus. Um, so that's what we're hoping for. So when we come together Christmas Eve, we will just be blown away by the promises of God that are manifested in the birth of a baby. Okay, uh, I did want to share with you something was released Thanksgiving Day. Now, I know the Twitter hashtag Walmart fights was trending worldwide. Did you guys know that? You guys don't do social media, but there, were, there was a whole string of posts that showed every picture and video of every fight that happened on Thursday and Friday. So that was a worldwide trend. But something else happened that day on Thursday, the release of the, kids, the Bible for Kids from Life Church in Oklahoma. Now, some of you have, if you have smartphones, you have the Bible app. It's the free one, and it's awesome. Well, they released a kid's version, um, and in it is some tasks you can do. They teach the story of creation. It reads to the kids, and my kids wouldn't put it down. I have a picture of them. They're in their pajamas, and I thought that would be a little weird to show, but they love this thing. They're just going through it. They just take off. So if, you have, if you're purchasing an iPod or an iPad or some inferior device for... <laughs> 
for your for children or grandchildren, then you can do that, but preload it with this. It's free, and hand it to them and say, hey, I got you something. Oh, by the way, there's a little, little something on there for you. And it's, it'd be devious, and it'd be beautiful at the same time. And it, it's, it's really remarkable. Just trying to put in your hands things. You saw what was up here during Hanging of the Greens. There's like almost 30 kids up here singing. I mean, there were people around like, whoa, there's that many kids in this church? What happened? Well, that's what Tammy's dealing with every week. There's amazing kids growing. And if we set the kindling around them, I mean, that's why we want to be about these kids knowing the truth. If we set the kindling of everything, every opportunity for the Holy Spirit to awaken their hearts, to open them up, and for truth to bust into them, then we're setting them up for their future. We're setting them up for generations upon generations upon generations who proclaim the name of Jesus. So, can a free app do all that? No, the Holy Spirit does it, but we can, you know, set the kindling and he'll light this fire, right? Um, but our sermons are going to be, the next few weeks are about promises made and promises kept as we walk through the Old Testament, okay? So let's pray, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Um, thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for the amazing scenes that we've seen of the decorations around the church, the great times we had over cookies, but then... Lord, we want it all to point to you. If it was just about decorations and just about cookies and just about being together and having family and friends nearby, then it would terminate quickly. It has to roll up into worship and praise of you. We have to set our eyes upon you because you're all that we need. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Mark Deaver, did a, he's a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he did a couple sermons, a couple series of sermons, and he did it over a couple different years. And one Sunday, he got up and he did a survey of the entire Bible, book by book. Um, I mean, he does hour and 15-minute sermons, so don't, don't begrudge me too much yet. And then he did it in two chunks. He did one Sunday was the Old Testament, the next Sunday was the New Testament. If, if you as adults want to read that in a much more precise and better way than I could ever hope to do it, his book is called What Does God Want of Us Anyway? And it's essentially some edited sermon manuscripts of what he went through. Um, and it's, it's great. I mean, you get the whole Bible. Well, the theme that I got out of this book was that we should read the Old Testament as the promises of God. That God is a God of promise. He makes promises to his creation, and he promises himself. And then we read the New Testament as those promises being kept. Um, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this is kind of laid out, that he, he fulfills his promises. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. He doesn't back down. He doesn't go on a sideways path. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. And we can cling to that. We can cling to the hope that God is for us. We open up his word and we see that he wants us. And so in the storybook Bible, that's the constant theme. And I'm going to read parts of it to you as we go through. We're just going to do the first chapters, and that's what we're going to do the next few weeks. I'm going to do the preview. And then you are going to go home and you're going to read it yourself. You're going to read it to your kids, to your grandkids. You're going to sit around and read it when you got spare time. If you don't like the book version, you can get the digital version. There's no reason that we can't open up God's Word together. And my prayer is at the end, we fall in love with His Word. We fall in love with how much He cares for us. The beginning. The point of the Bible is Jesus. The Old Testament makes the promises about Christ, and the New Testament keeps those promises about Christ. And I think that's what happens when we start reading the Bible, especially when you first come to a relationship with Jesus, or you're just on the fringes kind of trying to figure this thing out. We open up the book, and like every book we're supposed to read, except for John, who reads the end first, we start in the beginning. And we're like, okay, Genesis. 
this is weird. It's confusing. What's happening? Whoa, they did that? Are you kidding me? Noah did that? that this kids did that to him? They did this? What? A guy took on more wives? What an idiot. You know, just we kind of go through. That was supposed to be a joke, but nobody forgot that. <laughs> we go through the Old Testament, and then we just get bogged down. Most people hit about numbers, and they quit. And they might jump ahead, but we, we don't read it right. We think that the Bible is like the Wizard of Oz. Dramatic crash there. That the Bible is like the Wizard of Oz. That the Old Testament is kind of the scary, weird, all in black and white. It's old-fashioned. We shouldn't touch it. It's just, just forget about it. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears, and it's all technicolor. And then we like that story, and that's fun, and we enjoy that. But we don't want to go back to the black and white. We don't want to go back to that. Well, that's not how we should read our Bibles. The Old Testament is a story of people in rebellion, but God has promised himself over and over and over again. And so I have this quote from John Stott. I think this sums it up, and then I'll show you a little timeline. A man who loves his wife will love her letters and her photographs because they speak to him of her. So if we love the Lord Jesus, we shall love the Bible because it speaks to us of him. The husband is not so stupid as to prefer his wife's letters to her voice or her photographs to herself. He simply loves them because of her. So too we love the Bible because of Christ. It is his portrait. It is his love letter. It, we shouldn't focus so strong in just this that we never connect with God. It, it's what, what we've, I keep mentioning or kind of calling it the divine dance. If you spend all your time with your head in this book, you will have terrific knowledge of God. But does it have any experience in your heart? Do you have any experience of that love and that joy that you're reading about here? You have to know Him. But if you spend no time in God's Word, and you just seek Him, and you seek emotion, and seek you know, experience, then you can go way off the deep end if you don't guard it in His love letter, in the truth that is the Scriptures. And that's where we sit. We love to be in His presence. We love that feeling of the Holy Spirit landing in worship. We love those moments where He just like gives us this little blessing and tells us He's near. But we also open up his word and we love the promise that we have of him. We have to read the scriptures that way. This is a timeline. Oh, we'll skip this. This is a timeline of, that I stole from Andy Stanley several years ago. He did a series at North Point Community Church in Texas. And it's been one of the most helpful graphics I've ever found. That if you study the Old Testament and you have this, this part here in the middle... If you look at the histories here along the middle as kind of like the History Channel when it's not biased and wrong. The History Channel as fact, as truth, as these are the dates in which it happened. And then you look above and below the, the timeline of the history books and you see the commentaries. You see um, the prophets. You see the writings. You see the Psalms, the writings of King Solomon. You've got all the stories of people, the story of Job. Um, You've got all the different things that are laid out that aren't history. So that's why when you open up the Old Testament, you sometimes get confused because you start in Genesis and you're reading through and you'll read a commentary about an event that happened way back here. So like the Psalms, written a lot by King David. Well, he existed and he was king in 2 Samuel. Well, you have him writing the Psalms. So I've talked to you about, you've talked about this before. Like one of my, I try to get this connection in people's heads is when King David cheats on his wife with Bathsheba and kills her husband and he's confronted in his sin and he's called out in it. When he repents, he writes Psalm 51. So we read 
how this happened in 2 Samuel, but we read David's own commentary of what his heart's going through in Psalm 51, where he says, I've sinned against God and God alone. So that's how you should read it. So you've got histories, and then you've got all the prophets and all the writings, and that's kind of like the editorial. Well, that's not true. It's the commentary, the stories, the poem, the poetry. It all exists. So in King Solomon, you have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. You have, which are kind of probably probably in the wrong order there, but you have his life. And when he's a, a young man, he writes the Song of Solomon, his love for his wife, his bride. Later in life, as king, he writes Proverbs, the wisdom. And then later in his life, he writes Ecclesiastes when he has screwed everything up. He's messed up his whole life. And he writes Ecclesiastes to his son and says, all that matters is God. I have tasted the best wine. I've had the best parties. I've seen it all. And it's all for naught. All that matters is God. That exists in a historical timeline. So the Old Testament has this richness to it if we just put our brains around it properly. So I'm going to read to you the beginning of this book. It's called The Story and the Song. It's kind of the introduction by the author. From Psalm 19 in Hebrews 1. The heavens are singing about how great God is, and the skies are shouting it out. See what God has made. Day after day, night after night, they are speaking to us. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words too and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but, as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is more, most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling the big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, a piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. <clears throat> and suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day... But wait, our story starts where all good stories start, right at the very beginning. And then you jump right into Genesis. The title is The Beginning, A Perfect Home. So you jump right in to the story of creation. A perfect home created for us. And we know this, we've talked about this the last few weeks. That Genesis describes how the world began. It began good and perfect, and God said it is good. And in our humanity, and our pride, our first mother and father, Adam and Eve, broke it. In their rebellion, and their unwillingness to submit themselves to the God of the universe to be in a relationship with him, 
I mean, can you think about that? God offers himself in every way to this creation, to Adam and Eve, who he wants to walk with and talk with. And he says, go, be fruitful, multiply, expand my image across the planet. And they choose instead themselves. So God makes it, and he makes it good. God loved them with all his heart, and they were lovely because he loved them. And Adam and Eve joined in the song of the stars and the streams and the wind and the trees, the wonderful song of love to the one who made them. Their hearts were filled with happiness, and nothing ever made them sad or lonely or sick or afraid. God looked at everything he had made. Perfect, he said, and it was. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, that's what you're created for. That, that's, that's your purpose for existing, is to worship God and to enjoy Him forever. Most people get the worship part and they don't like it because they think you have to sing a lot and I can't sing and we all know that. But we forget the part that says we're to enjoy Him forever. That a relationship with God on this earth and in heaven is one of joy. Marked by joy. That you're going to enjoy His presence forever. But all the stars and the mountains and oceans and galaxies and everything were nothing compared to how much God loved His children. He would always, He would move heaven and earth to be near them. Always. Whatever happened, whatever it cost Him, He would always love them. And so it was that the wonderful love story began. The first promise, that He's always going to love His creation. He's always going to love. And then the terrible lie is introduced. In our rebellion, we traded the creator for the created for the creator. We see this roll out in Romans chapter one when Paul writes that in our disobedience we exchanged worship of the creator for worship of self, worship of the created. Instead of God the Father walking in the garden with us, humanity chose to worship things that He created. So we begin to worship trees, or hug them, or whatever we do with trees. See what I did there? Okay, or we begin to worship things we create. We build a statue, and we put it on a mantle, something you made with your own hands, or somebody made and you bought, and you put it up there, and you worship a statue that was made by a human. How's that divine? Makes no sense. It's illogical. But instead, we traded that lie. We traded a relationship with the Creator to say, I can do this on my own. I can figure this out on my own. I'm big, I'm powerful, I've been given the image of God, I can make my own decisions, I will not submit myself to anyone. I will not humble myself. So the lie happens, and all of creation is broken. But God had a plan. A magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children. With a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. I love that phrase. And you just read it throughout the storybook Bible. That God's love for you is a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And though they would forget Him and run from Him deep in their hearts, God's children would miss Him always and long for Him, lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. Don't miss that. Don't miss our responsibility in this. God didn't say, oh, you broke it? 
Don't worry about it. We're good. He does say that, but he says, you did it. God didn't do this. We have a responsibility. That's why every time we talk to someone, we, we speak to them in love out of their sin, we, have, we hold them responsible. There are consequences for actions. We hold them responsible, but we do it with love and grace and mercy that pours from heaven. That's why throughout the New Testament, you'll, especially Paul, he'll say, how, how can you have anger towards someone when God has shown you great grace and favor? You're, it's required for us to forgive. It's part of who we are. We must forgive. How dare we hold a grudge? How dare we hold anger, animosity towards our brothers and sisters because of what Christ has done on the cross for us? Now, that doesn't mean you don't hold them accountable. We're not saying that we just give everybody a free pass for everything they ever do. We hold them accountable, but we do it with love. No one is so far from God that he can't love them. There is nothing that you do that keeps you from God. There's nothing you do that makes him love you more either. He loves you because he is love. And so even in his wisdom and his love, he cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. One of the most loving things God could have done. If he had left them in the garden, they would have lived eternally in sin, eternally separated from God. But when he cast them out, he gave them hope. And he gave the promise that Jesus will come and fix it all. He gave them the promise. If it wasn't for that loving act, we'd have no hope. We couldn't light the hope candle. So even though if you're like me and you watch the news and you see natural disasters and you hear of people with cancer and people are sick, there's this small part of you as an image bearer of God, as a lover of Christ, that says, this isn't right. It shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't happen this way. It's not right. And you should feel that inside. It's not how it's meant to be. It's not how we're supposed to have it. But we broke it, and there are consequences. So when God cast us out, he was saying, I'm giving you hope. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. But I'm promising you myself. And we can cling to that. We can cling to him. Keep going, a new beginning. So as the world began to terminate on itself, so just generations later, the world's a mess. God looks down and he grieves that he even created it. And he's ready to wipe it out. But he says, I'm going to set apart a family. And I'm going to show him favor, which we discussed is the Old Testament way of saying grace. I'm going to pour grace on Noah. And out of him, I will show the world that I am good, but there are consequences. So he floods the earth. And he wipes out everything except what's in the ark, what's with Noah. And he promises he'll never do that again. And he puts a rainbow in the clouds, which says, this is my bow. I will no longer shoot my wrath towards you. It's aimed at heaven. This is a promise. He makes a promise. There are consequences for sin, but I promise I will not wipe it out again like this. I will not come like this again. And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun, was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why, before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan, a plan not to destroy the world, but to rescue it, a plan to one day send his own son, the rescuer. So in Noah, we see the promise of true rescue. 
that he's never going to do that again. In Noah, we see the promise of Jesus, that he's coming to make it right for once and for all. And then we see, again, humans. Like, there's this pattern. If you read through the Old Testament, like the guys who just finished up reading through Isaiah, and like, you just, it's this constant, like, all right, ah, oh, we stink. Oh, we got it. God's, ah, oh, man, we messed up again. Like, if you read through the Old Testament, you should walk away with great hope that God is, if he's not going to wipe the planet out because of those fools, we're probably okay. He's coming back eventually, and he will wipe it out, but you should find great hope in the grace and mercy of God in reading the Old Testament. So you've got Noah. The whole planet's destroyed. He lands, and in generations later, you have prideful people building a tower to be like God, the Tower of Babel. So you have this tower being built. God says, go out, be fruitful, multiply. What's humanity do? Let's uh, get in a holy huddle and just hang out with ourselves. That is not what God said to do. God said to go out and be fruitful and multiply. He wanted his name to be proclaimed around the world. So what did the people of God do? Hey, let's just build a tower and make it really tall. Skyscrapers are cool. Let's do that. So they build one. It doesn't go very well for them. So he confuses their language. This is one of uh, my kids' favorite stories. If you're friends with Amber on Facebook, then we have a friend that came and visited, some friends. Um, their sons were in the college ministry back in West Virginia, and they came out and visited. And I don't know how it happened, but they got in a conversation with Eli and Savannah over the storybook Bible, and they read one of their favorite stories to them. So now it's becoming this Facebook thing back and forth. It's pretty funny. The Tower of Babel. So God confuses the languages. He gives them different languages. Because, I mean, if you've been to another country that doesn't speak English, you know how difficult it is to communicate, right? How difficult it is to learn. I mean, you can, I don't know what it is about humanity, but I think we believe that if we just talk louder, that's a translation device. So you go to another country and you just yell in English and you think that automatically makes it Spanish. And it, it doesn't. Stop it. Don't do that. So we land in another country. It's very difficult. You can get by and you can point and you can do things, but it's hard. So when God confuses their languages, they scatter. Out of the storybook Bible, it's described this way. One morning they went to work as usual, but everything was different. Their words were all new and funny. You see, God had given each person a completely different language. Suddenly, no one understood what anyone else was saying. Someone would say, how do you do? And the other person thought they said, how ugly are you? It wasn't funny. You could be saying something nice like, such a lovely morning, and get a punch in the nose because they thought you said, hush up, you're boring. You couldn't even say pardon to check if you'd heard right because no one understood that word either. And it just keeps going. That in the tower, we have this, this crazy pushing out of people. When God says go, you're to go. If you don't go, he's going to push you out. You see, God knew however high they reached, however hard they tried, people could never get back to heaven by themselves. People didn't need a staircase, they needed a rescuer, because the way back to heaven wasn't a staircase, it was a person. People could never reach up to heaven, so heaven would have to come down to them, and one day it would. I mean, the, the Tower of Babel speaks to the futility of you trying to pretty yourself up and become perfect. It's not possible. You can't be perfect. God does not love some future mythological version of yourself that's perfect. He loves you right where you're at right now. In the midst of the pain, in the midst of the mess, the midst of sin, He loves you right where you're at right now. And He wants to speak into that. 
And he sent his rescuer to do that. Abraham, in God's, I mean, it's divine wisdom, because it makes no sense to me. These people keep rejecting him. And so God says, I'm going to pick a man. And out of that man, I'm going to expand the nations. So I've done it this way. I've done it this way. And so now I'm going to pick a people group, and I'm going to let them be the light that shines me to the nations. And he chooses Abraham. He chooses Abraham. We see in Genesis chapter 12, the choosing of Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see, like, that's why all the prosperity gospel stuff is so damaging and so wrong. From the beginning in Genesis, God chooses a man and says, I'm going to bless you so you become a blessing. If you get blessings from God, then you're to use those to roll up to worship to God and then to bless others. He will never give you billions of dollars just to hoard it for yourself. It's not going to happen. He give, if it comes from God, then he is blessing you to be a blessing to the nations. Abraham was the one first promised this. Abraham from you? Can you imagine that? So this is a, this is a shepherd. He's a herdsman. He had, he had some wealth. I mean, he was a good shepherd. He had a couple employees, some ranch hands. I don't know if shepherds have ranch hands, but that's what he had. Just trying to make it work. And he says, pack up all that you have at 75 years old, pack it all up, and you're going to move. So it would be like one of you going to one of the herders, shepherds, ranch owners around here and say, hey, you need to pack up all your stuff. We're going to move you to Southern California just because the weather's nice or something. You're going to go there and be a blessing to everyone around you. The name of God will spread through you to all of these people. If they reject you, if they push you away, doesn't matter. I'm going to show them who I am through you. So he picks him up and he takes him. And Abraham goes. He obeys God. He listens. Abraham's promise to be the father of God's people, which means out of Abraham comes the rescuer. I, I tried to do it. I think it's, I know that Jesus is the 25th great-grandson of David. Somebody did that and I read it somewhere and I remember it. So you have at least 25 generations from King David to Jesus. And you have just as many generations from Abraham to David. And so the promise is that this lineage comes the rescuer. Jesus comes from Abraham. That out of him, the world would be blessed. God never breaks these promises. So he makes this promise to Abraham. Now, if you know the story of Abraham and Isaac, the story is laid out that Abraham, um, he messes up. He's promised a child. Sarah gets impatient because she's like 105. Like, I don't know why she's impatient about childbirth at 105. I mean, it happens all the time. She gets impatient, so she invites another woman into the tent, um, which is always a bad idea, and that goes horribly wrong for them. You will not see in the Old Testament any man that added to his marriage another woman that his life wasn't a wreck afterwards. Do a study. So anybody that talks about like, well, you know, in the Old Testament, in the Bible, you know, they had another and had a concubine and extra women and 
Like they try, we're like teenagers going, well, mom, dad, he did it. Can I do it too? No, you can't. If you do a study through the Old Testament, any man that took on more women than his wife, it went horribly wrong for him. So even though the Bible doesn't just lay this out and say, this is wrong, you see through the stories of all the men in the Old Testament, that's wrong. It's going to go bad for you. So in their impatience, Abraham, he just doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to do. So then when he gets his son Isaac, he's blessed with this son. It's a promise from God fulfilled. The promise of God is fulfilled. He has a son. His name will now grow. His name will now be known. Then God says, I want you to take your son, and I want you to take him to the top of a mountain, and I want you to put him on an altar, and I want you to kill him. Sacrifice him to me. I don't... I trust God, and I trust in his promises, but if he said that to me, I I couldn't do it. Could you? And we've got to put this in proper context. What has Abraham experienced for his whole life? To 75, so for 30 years... He's listening to God. God said, go into this place. I'll give it to you. Okay, he gets it. Go into this place. I'm going to give this to you. Fight these people. Raise up against these people. Bless these people. And at every turn, God has proved himself to be trustworthy and right every single time. So when he tells him to go sacrifice his son, it's a prom- God promised that, I, that my children through my son would be known. Isaac is not married, he has no kids, therefore he walks to that mountaintop knowing that even if he puts a knife in his son's chest, God's clearly going to raise him from the dead. Because God had proven himself trustworthy his whole life. So why would this one moment, all of a sudden he's not trustworthy? So Abraham takes him, and Isaac carries the wood. Isaac doesn't fight this. The storybook Bible describes it this way. God wanted to rescue his people, not punish them. But they must trust him. One day someone will be born into your family, God promised them, and he will bring happiness to the whole world. God was getting ready to give the whole world a wonderful present. It would be God's way to tell his people, I love you. Many years later, another son would climb another hill, carrying wood on his back, like Isaac. He would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son he loved. So in the story of Abraham and Isaac, we see the promise of Jesus. When he provides the sacrifice, remember we talked about it last week or two weeks ago, that the angel of the Lord, anytime in the Old Testament you see angel of the Lord, that's it's understood to be Jesus coming, that Jesus comes and says, no, 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 don't do it. The sacrifice is over there. It's a lamb. That God provides the sacrifice. That God, he, you can trust him with everything. So we rest in the promise. We rest in this promise. We see this promise of Abraham laid out in Romans chapter 4. Verse 13, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. If just following rules got you a connection with God, then the promise of faith is a lie. So we don't put any weight in following rules or wearing the right clothes or being the right kind of person. It's garbage. 
It's faith in Jesus Christ who loved you first. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. We need the law. The law is the diagnosis. The Holy Spirit comes to convict. The church holds you accountable. We're the diagnosis that you have a disease. The cure is Jesus. The law is meant to be a diagnostic tool, but the cure is Jesus. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. This is again, talking about Abraham. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distress made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you trust in the hope of the glory of God? Do you trust him that he's good? That when he promises himself, he will fulfill that promise? Do you trust that? I don't, I don't know what you hope in if you don't hope in Jesus. I don't know. I don't know what you have hope in. Because everything else will come up lacking. Everything else will fall short. How do you function? How do you deal with it? If you have no hope in anything but yourself. I know some of you. I wouldn't put my hope in you. Who do you put your hope in? A doctor? Do you know how many people die from malpractice in, in the doctor's office? Who do you put your hope in? The government? Governments all over the world people put their hope in, and they overthrow them and wipe out their citizenry. That's who you're going to put your hope in? You put your hope in your wife? You put your hope in your husband? You put your hope in your children? They will all let you down. At every turn, they will let you down. So who do you put your hope in? You put your hope in the promise of Jesus Christ. You put your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. So that even though you have a bad day at work, you have a bad day at home, you have a bad date with your wife or your husband, you have a bad time with your kids, that day when they just won't listen and you just want to give them away, or the day when they're sick and you don't know what to do and you don't know how to act, and you want tests run, but you don't know, and you don't know if this thing in his stomach is just a sickness or if it's cancer and you don't know, what am I going to do? Put the hope in a test? I'm going to put my hope in Jesus Christ. That even though he may take my son tomorrow, he's given me him for eight and a half years. And if he takes my son, then I'm going to, prom- I'm going to trust in the promise that I will be with him forever. In eternity. 
I put my hope in Him, in nothing else. And because my hope is in Jesus Christ, in the coming of a baby in a manger for my sin, then I can love my wife well. Then I can parent well. Then I can be a good man. Then, Because without that, I got nothing. Without him living in me, I got nothing. Some of you know me pretty well. What a disaster would that be if it was just of my own will? Exactly. An amen from the back. Who do you put your hope in? That's what this hope candle's for. That when it's dark and it's bad and we don't know and we, we put our hope in Jesus Christ. That he may, not re, he may not remove this. We may have to walk headlong right through it. But he's going to be with us by our side every step of the way. We, we don't walk around and act like there is no pain there is no suffering, there is no hurt, but we walk through it like conquerors who know that at the end of the pain, the end of the tunnel, is Jesus, and he's all that I want. The Old Testament consistently teaches this. So as we read through the storybook Bible for the next few weeks, I pray you see that. That when God sets up a nation to be a symbol of his glory, and he sends them on a course and says to be a city on a hill, it wasn't for just them to feel good about themselves. It was for them to show his glory. How many times have you been around a church service where pe- there's people around, people are invited, there's new visitors, there's guests, there's people coming, God's moving, and what, what's the most horrific thing you could say? You guys did a great job inviting people. You guys did a great job of showing the glory of God. You're awesome. It's not about you. It's about you and your confidence of trusting in Jesus Christ that when people come, you say, this church is awesome because Jesus is there. You don't want to go to First Christian Church? I get it. That guy talks too long. Sometimes I don't like it either. But Jesus is what matters. If this isn't the place for you, then you've got to get in a community of people where Jesus is present. That's fine. Never darken the steps of, we don't really have steps, but never darken the door of our church. But I care about you having Jesus. Is he the centerpiece of your heart? Yeah, he is. Okay. Then he's the only hope that we have. It's only in him that we have our hope. And I pray as we walk through Advent, you see that. You see that we had 25 little kids. I think it was 25, I counted right. And some not so little. Don't tell them I said little. The older ones will be upset with that. That we have this unique opportunity to set the kindling of God's spirit around them. That we see throughout the Old Testament generations of men grow up, grow big, they get old, they have kids, and then the name of God spreads through the children. That we're in a place where God has blessed us with all of these kids. What a shame if we aren't teaching them the truth of our faith so that when they grow up, they teach their children about Jesus. I didn't have that. God rescued me as a high school student who went to church because of a girl who later dumped him, but Jesus found me. He captured my heart and opened me up to the truth of the universe and the truth of who he is. 
but I had 17 years filled with things that I'm not proud of. And if my parents had taken the responsibility seriously of teaching me about Jesus, that may have saved me all kinds of awkward going back home to Vincennes, walks in Walmart. Where I know I'm freed from guilt and shame. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there are some people in that town I really just don't want to run into. Because I'm not proud of that, of who I was. You have a unique opportunity. If you have grandkids, you've got kids, this is a tool in your toolbox of opening them up to the truth of Jesus Christ. Every kid loves to be read to by their parents. When they hit, you know, upper grade school, they might not like it, but you make them read. You tell them it's homework. If we set the kindling around, look at the generational faith that can exist in our kids. These aren't just little ones being taught about Jesus. These are little ones being taught about Jesus who then will teach their kids, who will teach their kids, who will teach their kids. What a beautiful story of God being known to the nations. So who do you put your hope in? Who do you put your trust in? I pray it's Jesus. Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your servants who have set in motion tools that we can use like the Storybook Bible. We don't want to worship a book, but it's a great tool for us to use so that we can have generations upon generations of people proclaiming your name. And Lord, in this room, I'm fairly certain there are people in here who haven't surrendered themselves totally to you. Lord, I pray that if, if this isn't the day that you open their hearts and they they turn and repent of their sin, then that would be something that would happen very soon as we walk through the Old Testament. My prayer is that your word, we know it's true, but I pray that we would see your word not return void. That when people spend time reading the love letter you wrote to us, they'll be blown away by your grace and your mercy. So Lord, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, I'm worried about them. I don't know how they walk in hope. I don't know how they make it through a day without being able to cling to you. There's so much pressure and so much stuff all around us that would just make us fall into depression. So Lord, I pray that you would open up hearts, that they would share that with others, that you've set this table for grace and mercy to be poured upon them if they would just submit their lives. Lord, that's the, that's the divine dance that we kind of live in where we can't just be all about emotion. But we also can't just be about reading your word. We need to let the two combine and the richness of the truth that is your son Jesus. And Lord, for those of us in the room that have known you for a while, I pray that we would have a new sense of, of love for your word and put in us a sense of urgency during this holiday season where your name is going to be proclaimed all over where a holiday that centers around your birth is going to be on display for the whole world, that we would have the words to say to our family and our friends that you're the reason that we worship. As we sing this last song, I pray that we would do it in full love and that we would do it from the top of our lungs.
because you're all that matters. We love you, Jesus. Amen.